I've got big news. What? Celebrate is back. Yes, it is. The number one event for Revenue Pros is happening on November 15th. This virtual half-day event is packed with the playbooks, tactics, and insights you need for an upper hand in Q4 and beyond. Plus, I heard Upwork and Udemy will be sharing how they win more with Gone. And we have an extra special keynote speaker who I'm super excited about. Jeez, what a cliffhanger. But really, this is one event you won't want to miss. If you're not already registered, be sure to save your seat by going to events.gone.io backslash celebrate dash beyond 22. Or grab the link in the show notes. We can't wait to see you there. You need to understand what your team is going through right now and what your sales team needs. Ladies and gentlemen, out in the revenue intelligence universe. It brings me tremendous pleasure to bring yet another hard-hitting guest onto the show. We are graced by Cheyenne Sampson's presence today. She's an award-winning sales leader with nearly three decades of experience and double digits worth of sales leaders who have studied under her tutelage. Most recently, Cheyenne authored the book, Triage Sales Coaching, the daily handbook for creating sales champions. She's generously sharing her amazing insights with us on exactly how to create those sales champions. Let's dive in with Cheyenne. Cheyenne, welcome to Reveal. I'm so excited to have you here. I am so excited to be here, Danny. I, I love you. I love Gong, so it's an honor. Oh, man. Well, you're certainly part of the family. And as I mentioned to our listeners, just that anthology of experience and what you have seen that has spanned generations of both leaders and sellers. The first question I have to ask, can you give us an understanding over the years, because you've occupied roles in entire sales leadership team, it's specifically in business development, sometimes in inside sales, and then again, even in enablement, talk to us a little bit about the evolution of the DNA or the prototypical persona that is now selling from sort of bookend to bookend. Let's step back a little bit here and say we can't talk about that unless we talk about technology as well, right? Oh. I think that sales has evolved so much. I even wrote my master's thesis on the evolution of sales and sales leadership, which was fun. I'm sure my professor just loved reading that. But I think it's changed so much because of our access to information and technology and how quickly we've had to adapt as salespeople. But I think nowadays the level of critical thinking and intelligence that's involved in sales has to be so high compared to the past. In the past, you had to, you know, just speak really intelligently, have really strong communication styles, and we still have to have that. But the level of intellect, critical thinking, questioning, really genuine curiosity that we have to have these days, because consumers or prospects have so much access to information, right? So I think that's the core of the evolution of the salesperson this day and age. And thinking about the paradigm that was in an era of sales past and now almost like the Christmas carol of, I don't know, present day sales and then future day sales. I'm wondering, as you contemplate what each phase of a seller's evolution, what is it that they needed? What is it that they need? And what will they need? Can you speak a little bit, given your perch from leading so many different teams, but talk to me about 
how you might have managed a seller in the past, given your 26, 30 years of experience. And now how are you managing those personas differently? So you're going to laugh at this. One of the first things I sold was Kirby vacuums over the phone at a very, <laughs> very young age, right? Yeah. And if you look at the foundation of what makes a great salesperson, the foundation stays strong. You look at How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, written in 1936, the Bible to salespeople, right? He also invented what public speaking courses in New York back then. But that remains true. All of that remains true. You have to be a good listener. You have to make people feel a certain way, know what makes them feel important. I think that foundation remains. I think okay. what has changed and what will continue to change is that one, we have to really deeply know our product and our industry because people can Google so quickly. If I say one thing, they already know it. They've already Googled our company. They've already Googled our industry. And so you can't use what we would call traditional sales techniques. You still need to know the pain. You still need to know why people buy, but you have to be the smartest person in the room now. You have to know what their company sells. You have to know what their company provides, how they're going to use your product, and you have to know what your product does inside and out. So we're all, salespeople are slowly evolving into like SCs in a way, right? So we mm -hmm. have SCs on our team. And when I listen to our SCs, our SCs are salespeople as well. They know how to sell and they know how to move forward. And if we're not careful as salespeople, if we don't continue to involve on the intellect side, SCs might replace us as technology continues yeah. to evolve, right? It's funny that you mention what I equate to being this arms race in the pursuit mm -hmm. of knowledge and information, whereas historically... Sellers had the upper hand because they were so intimately versed in their solution and the buyer was at the mercy of whatever they could glean from that exchange, typically in a face-to-face -face setting. And now it's virtual, so it's less personal, but also the parity or even the advantage that they have in better understanding even our own competitor solutions, given how much they can do themselves with the internet. It creates what I would think of as... An existential conundrum, right? Where we as salespeople are being asked to rise to a level that we've never achieved before because there hasn't been that burden of expectation. But then by extension, chasing you back a bit and thinking about the talent management side, because you've been so successful at running your own teams and advising executives on how they source talent and train talent and retain talent. Talk to me a little bit about as generationally, we see the exodus of whether it's boomers or Gen Xers and now millennials and even Gen Zers occupy an even larger sliver of our addressable market of talent. These segments of potential sellers are for better or for worse characterized as feeling entitled, being impatient, bruising like delicate flowers. So how do you balance as the leader that you are, Cheyenne, getting these people to rise to the occasion that they need to be in order to be successful, and yet also not over-rotating in setting a precedent that disenfranchises them or kind of inadvertently shows them the door because they can't get to that level. The first thing, being a leader, the first thing, as you say it, I want to respond with, well, check your leadership too. Make yeah, sure yeah. that you're not being, and I, I've been guilty in my life of being a tough leader because I am a highly accountable leader. And I do yeah. have some of that old school sales side in me still. So I'm like, oh, you know, hit the phones, you know. But I think that as the culture and environment has kind of changed into this, 
more caring about the people. You care about people's mental health. You care about work-life balance, et cetera. I think it's healthy for us leaders to have to learn that balance. That's, that's first, right? So I wanted to caveat what I'm about to say by starting it with that, because I am about to say, so that is real. What you yeah. just said is real. So you need to understand what your team is going through right now and what your sales team needs. So every team that I work with, the salesperson that will fit and be successful in that role changes just a little bit. So what I mean is there's a foundation, positive attitude. I always look for someone with positive attitude. I don't mean a cheerleader, but I mean somebody that can look at challenges and see them as opportunities and not obstacles, right? So just having a positive way of looking at life, you can call it growth mindset, you can call it whatever you want, but someone that looks yep. at it that way. Two is somebody that works hard. Can they hustle? Well, some of the questions I ask are, is this your first job out of college? It, going into especially a more technical advanced sale right after college? No, I can't hire that person. And the reason why is they just don't know what it is to grind yet. Now, if in college they were, you know, maybe head of their fraternity in sports, played division A and went to school. Okay, maybe, maybe. And it depends on, you know, can I coach and do I have time to ramp them, et cetera. And then can they take coaching and feedback? So one of the best books I ever read on leadership, Leadership Playbook by Nathan Jamil. I know you've heard of it. It's amazing. Nathan says that we should hire people and expect greatness from them. But the people that we hire should expect us in turn to make them even better, right? And so that's where coaching and all of that comes in. But can they take and implement feedback? So there's humans that can take it really well. Like I'll listen to you and you can give me feedback and I'm gonna smile and nod, but then I'm not gonna do anything about it, right? And then implementing, well, I can implement it, but maybe I argue with you or I hand you excuses or whatever, but they need to be able to do both. Like listen, take it in with a positive attitude, the growth mindset, and then be able to go out on the field and actually implement what we're giving them. So those are the three core things. And then on top of that, you need to know your sale. What does it take for a person at your company selling what you sell to be successful? The last company I was with, we needed empathy, relationship builders. You know, in, in the challenger, it says those are the least successful salespeople. What well, this particular company, they were the most successful salespeople. Okay. The company I'm at now, New Relic, you have to have a high intellect. It's not relationship at all. It's critical thinking. It's an intellectual sell. We hire people that want to get into sales that went through code camps that are aspiring engineers, those types of things. So you have to have the foundation, but then also knowing the humans that do best in your world, right? And you take those people and put them on your team and then you can hold them accountable. Uh, if you're really critical in interviews, I follow the who methodology. I love it. It allows you to really deep dive and really uncover patterns because one of the biggest challenges we face as sales leaders is they they can sell you in an interview, right? But then when you bring them on, they're opposite of everything you hired. Well, the who really helps uncover that. So if you take your foundation, understand what you're looking for, pair it with a strong hiring methodology, that solves for what you asked me. How do we deal with the softerness that we're dealing with, et cetera? <laughs> Cheyenne, for listeners who are on the line who aren't familiar with the WHO methodology, can you unpack, just so people take away some of your secret sauce, 
the book is the who hiring method, right? I'm sure everyone listening has a similar process where you have your hiring manager and maybe one other person in the, in the main interview that digs into the background. And then you have a couple people doing focal interviews, right? Where I'm, I'm digging into a specific characteristic or, or skill set that we're looking for. In the who method, in that main interview, we start where your career starts. So we work from the bottom up and you ask a specific set of questions that dig into how they worked with their manager, what their biggest success was, do they know their numbers, et cetera. And when I first started doing this for sales, I'm like, oh, you know, I don't really need that. I know how to hire salespeople. Hiring salespeople is one of my biggest skill sets. My last CEO was like, oh, make sure you tell your new company how good you are at hiring. And I'm like, okay. And it, I really give it a testament to one, just sheer experience at Yelp. We hired 30 to 60 new people a month and just the number of interviews I had to go through. But two, the who method added structure to it. And so what I mean by that is it took my knowledge base, et cetera, but allowed me to deep dive and peel back the onion and the patterns that you see arise when you're interviewing with the who method, you're like, it pulls out red flags and it kind of like makes you go, wow, I should have been doing this all along. So pick up the book, apply it to what you already know, and you'll be much better at hiring for sure. Cheyenne's talent for sales hiring is definitely a superpower especially in these tougher times. According to LinkedIn research, 76% of hiring managers say that attracting the right candidate is their greatest challenge in 2022. Interestingly, 41% of recruiters say that filling those entry-level positions is the hardest for them. So it's more important than ever to make sure you're being super intentional in those interviews in order to make sure candidates are actually the right fit for your team. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Cheyenne. want to go one step further when we talk about talent sourcing, because in your lifetime, sourcing talent, hiring for talent, I have to believe prior to all the advancements in sales technology, some of the carrots that you use to pull sellers in were perhaps what is now an outdated image of sales where you're on the golf course, you're at a fancy steak dinner, the incentives include things like fancy watches and so forth. And yes, there was a time and a place where that characterized sales. And now, as we see a progression more towards inside sales or digital sales, and this being much more formulaic, scientific, rigorous, perhaps some of the allure that we once associated with a era of sales past is no longer relevant as you're trying to source talent. And in the same breath, it's interesting to see employers perhaps feel inverted for the first time in history, where it's actually the talent who has more leverage. So talk to us a little bit about how do you source top talent when you don't have those carrots, not to mention you're bringing them into an environment that looks diametrically different from golf courses and ski lifts and fancy dinners with red wine. Well, Danny, so you dated both of us with that question, right? So I just want to call that out because most people that I hire don't even know that that ever existed. So for yeah. all you young listeners out there, you can't even imagine what it used to be like. And yeah, we ruined it for everybody. They always say Gen X ruined it for everyone. And I think that we really did, <laughs> right? But yeah, so you don't get those perks anymore, but it, but it aligned with sports. Because sports, you know, you used to be able to wine and dine sports talent and do all of those things. And then it became outlawed as well. So here's the thing. I think to attract talent, there's a few things. Talent will follow leadership 
I have it easier now. Yeah, I would say like you've built your reputation over time. People know what it's like to work for me. I know what good talent is out there. I have networks I can plug into, et cetera. But if you're an upcoming leader and you're trying to figure it out, one, protect your reputation with everything. It's all you have. Build your network. That's huge. Just because a salesperson isn't good in a specific industry means doesn't mean that they won't be good in a different industry. If you have someone that can hustle, can grind, can take feedback, can do all those things, it might just be the industry that they're not a, a, the best fit for, right? So also protect your network, et cetera. Two, to woo top talent, one, go after passion players, people that are interested in selling what you are selling. Don't just think that every salesperson out there is going to be interested in selling your product. Like at Gong, I would imagine you guys attract the best talent because you have salespeople that love selling and love selling to other salespeople. And we all know each other's culture and speak each other's language. And that's just an amazing world to live in, right? But that's a blessing. Like most sales careers, you don't get to speak to other salespeople. You speak to engineers, you speak to CFOs or whoever you're speaking to. But get people to sell something that they are excited to sell. That's a big one. Management, get them to work with people that they love to work with. Employee referrals, they want to work with their friends, those types of things. People aren't really interested in what do you remember in the tech boom in 2009? I was in Yelp in San Francisco. Oh, bean bags and having kombucha on tap and beer on tap. That really wooed people. We we're, were paying people like 30K in San Francisco, right? I think it was in the news that we, we, we paid people so little, but they would come in and eat turkey sandwiches and drink beer on top and they loved it. Yeah, you can't get people now with that, right? What they're looking for is freedom and lifestyle, remote work, ability to travel, passionate about the product, like I had said before. So understanding the salespeople that you have and what has attracted them so far, and then creating a culture that continues to attract that type of talent. Awesome. Well, I want to talk about your brand new opus. And in <laughs> the same conversation, when we cite Carnegie and how to win friends and influence people, what will surely become enshrined on the shelves of all sales classics, your triage sales coaching Walk us through in, again, the breadth of experience you've gotten to both experience firsthand, but then share with others. What's the genesis of this book? And if you could give us some cliff notes. So at Yelp, like I said before, we were training 30 to 60 new salespeople a month. Okay. And then they would go out on the sales floor and get promoted. The top ones would get promoted to management within their first year, right? So fresh out of college. You've sold for less than a year and now you're running a sales team. So I, up until Yelp, I'd never done enablement. As a matter of fact, I wasn't super happy about moving into enablement. I'd been a sales leader for so long, but I was one of the only people at Yelp that had prior sales experience. And so it was a gift and an honor to be able to build out that program. But what I found quickly was that the people we were moving into management young, 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 I'm talking age demographic here, 23 average, right? The people we were moving into sales management had little sales experience, didn't even really know what it took them to be successful, and then would try to turn around and create a, a team of salespeople. So one of the things that I found was, and we were we were recording calls back then. Oh my God, if we would have had Gong, that would have been, I don't even know, that would have been amazing. But so we were just listening to, to sales calls. 
And I was also coaching and training young leaders. So I would have a group of about four to five, sometimes six ASTMs is what we call them, associate sales training managers. And then they would have groups of brand new salespeople for the first like 90 days. But what I found is they'd listen to calls and just try to teach these humans to do what they did. And it doesn't always work that way. And then they'd be all over the map because reps always, oh, help me on my clothes, help me on my clothes, help me on my clothes. But Danny, you and I both know it's not the clothes. How you win a deal happens way before you ask for the credit card. They were always asking for feedback on handling objections and asking for the clothes. So I had been an EMT at one point, also selling at one point in my life and triage stuck to me. I'm like, we've got to develop a way of being able to break down a call by the most critical aspect, like what's going to kill the call. Then what's the next thing that's going to kill the call and so forth and so on and learn to break it down piece by piece. So I put triage together to teach our ASTMs how to coach up and coming salespeople, how to take a sales call start with the most crucial deal killing component of the call and then move on from there. So for example, it doesn't matter what you say on a call in terms of product knowledge or whatever. If you don't know how to speak, if you don't know how to speak professionally, if your tones are all off, if you're abrasive, you're going to kill that call. So tone, pace, and professionalism is the very first thing that I have salespeople work on. That last thing is the close and follow-up. And then there's seven steps in between, right? So I started using this with our ASTMs and started using it as framework. And it was successful. And it's like, okay, here's how to break down a sales call. Didn't think much of it. And then as I started going to other companies and consulting, people would be like, oh, but you know, that triage you gave us is really helpful. And then it was about in 2018, 2019, I came across The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. And he talks about pockets of talent around the world and how these pockets of talent came to be. And everyone thinks, oh, it's something in the water or it's genetics or what have you. But what he discovered was that it was a deep practice way of coaching that specific coaches were using. And I'm talking piano players. I'm talking soccer coaches. It didn't matter. Just a coach. But they would take a piece of the music or a piece of the athletic skill, or they would take a play or what have you and break it down piece by piece and have you work on that until it was perfected. One piece, work on it until it's perfected, then work on the next step and so forth and so on. So it was, it's called deep practice. And it has to do with the myelin in your brain and how it wraps around your nerve fibers to help you remember. I read this book and I was like, oh my God, that's why triage works. Oh my God. So I developed a deep practice around sales coaching. So you take, before just setting people on the phones, you take a piece of the sales call, a component, you have them deeply practice into it, perfect it before they move on. The beauty of triage is that it plugs into sales, any sales methodology. So you can use challenger, medic, spin, any of that. It's not a sales methodology. It's just simply a way of breaking down a sales call to help people get better at how they're speaking, presenting, and closing a deal. Well, the fact that you mentioned it is agnostic and its relevance to whatever methodology has been institutionalized already in your organization is one thing. But as you're talking about how the myelin relates to learning and absorbing and retaining behaviors, to me, if anything, it's a sales biohack where we think 
for our physical health or other things, whether we're using a diet that all of a sudden tricks ourselves or we're using something like keto. The triage method seems like it's playing that same sort of really effective biohack on our brain to then advance our conversion rates and our success rates in sales. That's so appropriate and fair. I think I'm going to steal it and use it as my own language. That was really well said. Thank you. Oh, man. All right. Here we are biohacking our brains to achieve more success in sales. I love it, Cheyenne. I love it. I'm like biohack. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that in there. <laughs> well, thinking about the consulting practice also that I know you've successfully run in parallel. And you've talked about the various leaders that rely on your firsthand empirical knowledge about what works. I'm wondering, are you able to share? Are CEOs all looking for totally radically different things based on the companies that they're at, based on maturities? Or are there some consistent and constant attributes that you and your experience have determined are pervasive across all successful teams. I mean, yes, it's so funny that that touches on a book that I'm writing right now. So I'm writing a book on the mistakes that CEOs make when building a sales team. Okay. So let's talk about, you know, some of the patterns that I see. So in speaking to dozens of startup CEOs from, you know, around the U.S. and even internationally, I hear the same story time and time again. And it's funny when it happened the first few times, I was like, okay, maybe it's coincidental because you're thinking, oh, every company is run so differently. Every sales team is just built so differently. And, the, and what's funny is when I sit down, the first thing they say is we're so different, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're so different. So you have a CEO that has a vision, they have a passion, they worked in the industry, they did something similar before, whatever. And then they, so they're very entrepreneurial, right? And then they launch and they're so excited and they're their first salesperson. They are their own first salesperson. They have the passion. They have all the product knowledge and experience because they're the first person selling. And they build this like strong confidence and I almost want to say ego around what they're able to accomplish, right? Then they'll bring one or two people underneath them. So they bring one or two salespeople underneath them and those people get to sit side by side with the CEO and they usually come from the industry. So, oh, I knew this guy or I knew this gal and, and we get to sell together, right? So they see really good results with these few first couple people. And then they try to scale at that point. And here's a few things that time and time again, I hear over and over. Okay. So then they go to scale. We didn't put structure or process in place because we knew what we were doing and what we were doing was working. So we had tribal knowledge and everybody knew what to do and we'd get on the phones and I would just teach you, Danny, I'd sit down and say, Danny, do this. And Danny would do this and Danny would be successful. And we did that with our first three or four people. And now we're trying to hire 10 people and grow out a sales team. And it's starting to unravel Two. What the heck? They're not able to sell the way I'm able to sell and they're not producing these results. So the first thing CEOs think is I have really shitty leadership and I have really shitty salespeople. It's just the wrong people. So I'll start asking questions like, well, what process do you have in place? What enablement did you give them? Let me see your scripts. Are they able to listen to their own calls? I'll start asking them all these questions. Well, no, no, no. And we don't need that. And we don't need this, right? So that lack of structure, lack of clear expectations really starts to unravel, especially when scaling kicks in. So even at the company I'm with now, New Relic, amazing company, amazing humans, grew really fast. 
they missed putting structure in place in so many different mm. ways that the team I'm building right now, I'm building an inside sales team from scratch and building out their sales development team. There's no structure. There's no expectations. And so it was very difficult coming in, holding people accountable and doing all those things, even at you know, the billion dollar scale that we're at right now, we don't have that in place. And so I have to come in like it's a startup and fix it, right? So if you can start as a startup by putting really strong process, clear expectations, clear structure, and it should be nimble, right? And, and ever evolving. So it's not that you put it in place, you just go off of it because as you grow and as you scale, it does have to change. I think the other thing is, is that CEO, CEOs, a lot of times I'll sit down with CEOs and I've had if I had a dollar for every time I had a CEO give off the impression that the sales team was a necessary evil. A lot of companies try to automate. They try to get away from using the sales teams. And I get that from the business sense. I get that. But you need your sales teams to build that relationship, to have those conversations, to further your revenue plans. Right. And so I'll see, you know, it's treating the team as if it's not part of the larger team and it's kind of siloed. And that's a huge mistake. Your company should be working cohesively and collaboratively cross-departmentally, right? And then not putting a coaching culture in place. So coaching culture, meaning leaders should be coached. Promoting young salespeople too fast and not coaching them, not teaching them how to coach and enable their teams sets you up for disaster. They can't just pipeline manage. You can't just chase down leads. They can't be on every call to close themselves. They have to know how to coach and manage their teams to make their teams better. It's our job to coach our people in a way that gets them to do things they never thought they could. You've heard that saying, right? And so creating a coaching culture. And then last but not least, please hire sales leaders that know what they're doing. So what I mean by that is so many times I've sat down with CEOs who have hired the wrong VPs of sales. They're the wrong VPs of sales for several reasons. One, there are VPs of sales that are really good at selling you on why you should hire them and nothing else, right? So Ask around, get referrals, use the who, who methodology because you'll start to uncover that. But also hire VPs of sales who have done your growth stage. If you're trying to go from, you know, 25 million to 50 million, or you're trying to go to 50 million to, you know, $200 million company, don't hire someone that's only worked at a company that's at a $12 million mark right? And vice versa. So I've been at companies where we've had sales leaders in place that have been at really big companies, Microsoft, Oracle, whatever, but have never scaled and been at a nimble company in a startup. And a startup will hire them because of their logo and say, oh, well, they, you know, Oracle's an amazing company. I'm going to put them in charge of my team and they're going to make the same thing happen. Yeah, but they don't know what it took to get from here to there. They just came in and ran it while it was a large company. So find VPs and sales leaders that understand what your stage of your company is and then be okay with parting ways. So, you know, I've been at companies where I had very real conversations with my CEOs where I've sat down and said like, hey, I'll get you here to here, but I'm probably only going to be with your company for two years. I call, I call myself the Mary Poppins 
Mary Poppins of sales, right? I come in, I fix everything, I make everything happy. And when the family's happy and the kids are getting along, I part ways, right? And so you got to find your sales leaders that are really good at your stage and then be okay with them leaving. Don't try to hang on to them because they did do really well and you love them and you're going to this next stage. Part ways, let them go scale someplace else and then hire the right person. And then last but not least, get yourself a mentor. Be find somebody in your general space that you can have very real conversations about how they grew their sales teams, right? And then and then invest in your sales teams, give them the tools they need. Well, I love the parable of you as Mary Poppins for sales leaders, just giving us a spoonful of sugar. How do we encourage and trust our people to exercise their own creative liberties? They're humans with free will and agency. And in fact, we want them to be authentic, which requires some latitude and grace that we give them. But to scale, as you say, there needs to be structure in place. And I'm wondering, how do we finesse those two ends of the spectrum? Ooh, I love that question. First, when I say, and and you said they can be contradictory, I disagree. I think that they absolutely are twins. They pair. They pair so nicely, like fine wine and a good steak. You know what I mean? Like perfect pairing. So what I mean by that is you have to have structure process in place. You have to have that and you have to have clear expectations. One of the things that I'm sure you've read first break all the rules, but the 14 questions that they ask, well, one of those questions is, do you know what's expected of you? One of the things I do for my team is I write out all of our expectations in it from attitude to pipeline, to metrics, you name it. So you have to have process in place because having process in place allows the guardrails to move quickly. So what I mean by that is we put structure, process, and expectations in place so that we don't have all these side conversations. So you're not getting distracted. So everyone's working together towards a common goal. So that puts the guardrails in place so that we can throw the ball as fast as we possibly can, right? So what I mean by that is the agility in allowing our humans the space to be nimble, test, test everything. I'm such a yes person, but I'm not going to completely roll it out. So careful of swinging a pendulum. I see leaders do that all the time. They'll hear a good idea and they'll say, yeah, let's go for it. I'm a, yeah, let's go for it. Let's test it. So I love A-B tests. I love strong hypothesis, but I'm going to try to prove you wrong. You go into it trying to prove it wrong or trying to prove it right. However, your your method is. I like to try to prove things wrong, right? But we're going to do a full test and then we're going to put process around it and then we're going to roll it. So those two things, if you pair them very well together, allow you to do both. It allows you to be that strong company that can scale as fast as you possibly can as well. Love that answer. Well, we asked this question of every guest that comes on to reveal. So maybe you know what's coming, but Cheyenne, here it is. If you were to describe sales in one word, what word would you use? I always say it's the great equalizer. Here's why. I come from a very humble beginnings. So we were very, very poor. And when I say poor, I I used to like dumpster dive for toys. Like we were almost homeless. We were very, very poor. Nobody in my family has an education. So I was the first person to get an education. Um, And I'm 5'2". I'm a female. There's a lot stacked against me, Danny. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
but I've been able to accomplish. And then as a single mom, so I have three daughters and two adopted twin boys and I'm a single mom and I've been able to accomplish what I've been able to accomplish because of sales. I'm obsessed. I study my craft. I love what we do. You know, I follow every amazing salesperson out there, but I call it the great equalizer because it doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your, you know, race. It doesn't matter your affluence and your education level. If you can sell, you can make your way in this world, right? And for listeners that are listening, you're going to have women on there going, great equalizer. This is a male dominated. And it uh, women, yes, amen, sisters. It absolutely is. But you can still be an amazing salesperson and break that glass ceiling. And so that's my word. Great equalizer. Love it. It's my heart. I'm getting chills thinking about earlier in today's episode, we talked about you no longer have the red wine dinners or the golf courses or what is this image that could have been, you know, quite intoxicating for sales, but I would want to bottle up what you just said. Why do you join a career in sales for everything you just so succinctly and perfectly articulated? I am inspired Cheyenne, what it is you've achieved on both a personal and professional level. And I just so, so thank you for vulnerably sharing the journey that you've been on that sales has allowed you to experience firsthand and then by extension, share with the rest of us. So again, what a privilege to hear from her holiness, the woman who has seen more miles than probably any of us will ever be able to compare. Cheyenne, it's been a real treat getting to bend your ear and pick your brain. It's been my honor. Thank you so much, Danny. Thanks so much for listening to the episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performing sales teams, head on over to gong.io. And if you like what you heard, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.